Hello everybody, I'm David Schuster and welcome to the conversation. So many of us are increasingly concerned about the future of our planet and what it's gonna be like for all of us. And there are a number of scientists and academics who believe there are some increasingly interesting signs and warnings that are now coming from the Amazon basin in South America. So here to talk about that is Pedro Andrade. He is a Brazilian author, journalist and television presenter. He has a show coming up on Vice TV known as Unknown Amazon. It's a program that debuts on July the 13th at 10 p.m. all about the Amazon. Pedro, welcome to the program. First of all, explain the significance of the Amazon. Great to be here. Well, I mean, whatever happens in the Amazon really is gonna impact us all. Uh, that's just a fact. I mean, it's easy to look at the Amazon as this far place, this distant place. But when you actually get down there, you understand that, uh, I mean, there will be an impact in terms of climate change, in terms of global warming, in terms of sustainability. Uh, so for me, it was the experience of a lifetime and it was really eye opening. I've always dreamed of going to the Amazon. I think the Amazon fascinates us all. Uh, but I'm, I was born and raised in Brazil, but I've been living in New York for 20 years. I host a travel show, I went to 65 countries and I just now had a chance to actually fulfill this dream and go down there. And I was blown away, uh, blown away and shocked you know, and worried. I mean, whatever happens in the Amazon, like I said, this place is one of the most uh, environmentally important places on earth and that's a fact. You're saying this is your first time down the Amazon. What surprised you about the experience? Because you have traveled so much around the world and you've seen so much. What jumped out to you? Well, I think what surprised me was the fact that, you know, we're used to reading about the political turmoil in Brazil. We're used to reading about wildlife trafficking. We're used to reading about wildfires in the Amazon. But we forget that, I mean, about 10 million people live in this place. So I, I was curious to know who actually lived, who were the guardians of the Amazon. And unfortunately, I was shocked by how um, dire, how worrisome the situation is. When I was born, 1% of the Amazon had been destroyed. Now 21% of the Amazon, as we know, have been destroyed. If we reach a number like 39, 40%, we'll reach a, a tipping point and the Amazon will become this huge savanna. Uh, this will destroy cities. I mean, it will raise the sea levels. Um, and I, I was also surprised to see that there are ways to actually profit and explore the Amazon. I didn't know that was possible. I think empowering indigenous communities, for example, is key to find a solution. Well, what are some of the other ways? In other words, that you can essentially use capitalism both to help the indigenous people, but also protect this, this treasure? Well, we need to give these people that live in the Amazon opportunity. You know, so uh, I saw a lot of people, for example, uh, in one of the episodes, we go to a Quilombola community. Quilombola are communities that are made of slave descendants, slaves that were able to run away. For you to have an idea, um, during the 17th and 18th century, about 450,000 slaves were brought here from Africa. Over 5 million were taken to Brazil. So you have all of these slices of Senegal, for example, in the middle of the largest rainforest on earth. And we have a president that is extremely racist. We have a president that treats indigenous people like they're worth less than cattle. So unless we give these communities opportunities to work, to be important, to survive, or 
you have to make indigenous reserves and leave them actually alone because they were able to be self-sufficient for centuries. So what we can't do is just open the Amazon. So people, not just Brazilians, but Chinese people, American corporation, for example, to walk into the Amazon, profit and just leave that whole territory destroyed. We need to actually give them the power, the people that live in the Amazon to preserve the Amazon, if you will. And it sounds like their economic conditions though are getting worse. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, for you to have an idea, uh, you have 10 million people living in, in the Amazon, but you have about 40 to 60 million heads of cattle. This means that farming has been destroying the Amazon. It's a humongous problem. I mean, one third of the trees around the world are in the Amazon. 20% of the flowing fresh water in the planet is in the Amazon. So like I said, if you actually pay attention to these numbers, if the Amazon was a country, it would be the sixth largest country in the world. And once again, we go about our days and we just think that whatever happens there won't affect us. It's not true. We really should be protecting these communities. Was there something specific that you saw in nature of the Amazon or something maybe that you're featuring in the show that really jumped out to you in terms of the breathtaking nature of the beauty and the species that are there? Oh my God, yes. I mean, we have an entire episode dedicated to wildlife. And so uh, I went to one of the largest rehabilitation centers in the Amazon. Uh, we rescued baby monkeys, we captured uh, giant caimans, uh, we uh, monitored giant eagles, the only bears in South America. It's just really breathtaking. This sounds silly, I, I usually say that some people, some journalists are, you know, obsessed with sports or with animals or wildlife. I'm usually just obsessed with the human aspect of places. But it's impossible to go down to the Amazon and not understand the value of this wildlife. You can't find anything even remotely similar anywhere in the world. Pedro, what was it like filming and producing this in the midst of the pandemic? It was a massive challenge. I'm really proud of the way we you know, took on this challenge. I think Vice is that network that will go places where other networks won't go at moments that other networks won't go. Talk to people that people like other networks are scared of talking to. And once they agreed to, you know, take this journey on with me, I I think we were really responsible. 70 PCR, 70 COVID tests later, uh, none of us got sick. I mean, the the tragedy that could happen if, God forbid, I brought any kind of virus into uh, one of these tribes that could, you know, decimate, pummel uh, an entire ethnicity. So uh, I can sleep, you know, <laughs> in peace, knowing that there were no indigenous people. None of us in the crew got harmed, but it, it was very challenging. I mean, the, the quarantining alone, that was a huge obstacle. Were there any dangers in terms of like trying to convince the indigenous population that you were there to essentially try to help them and not to essentially take advantage of them? Um, there were a lot of dangerous situations. I was held hostage by 250 armed indigenous people. I was death sworn. I had to be evacuated. 
a couple of times from the Amazon. I know that the way I'm talking about the show, it sounds like a heavy show, but I think what differentiates this show from other shows about the, the Amazon is the fact that we, we were able to have these tough conversations, to talk to the villains, to talk to the victims, and also to have fun. I think by the end of the series, people will have a better understanding of how priceless this place is. And I think they'll want to go. They might not want to go to you know explore the illegal mining practices that I explored. And once again, being held hostage is something that was terrifying. But I think the cause is so valuable. Like we're talking about something that's so important that it was well worth it. What was it that so angered the people who took you hostage? And was this you know, on one of your visits to one of these illegal mines or was this another part of the Amazon? And how did, I mean, what was going through your mind when this was happening? Well, to put it in a nutshell, I had interviewed this woman who's a force, like she is a reference in terms of indigenous rights, Alessandra. And she told me that she wanted everyone to you know, stay as far away from their community as possible. How much she hated the fact that indigenous people have been colonized, have been threatened, have been murdered for decades, for centuries actually. And then I found out that some people, 250, 300 Munduruku, which are her ethnicity, had blocked the busiest, most important road in the Amazon because they wanted to be able to work on illegal mining. They wanted to be able to profit from their own indigenous land. So I did what I think any journalist would do. I went down there to understand what the situation was and talk to them. And in a matter of 15 seconds, uh, we were surrounded by armed indigenous people. I mean, as you know, in this kind of job, things can go wrong really fast. Uh, and thankfully, we're, we're all okay, but it was scary. After this whole experience of putting the show together, does it leave you optimistic or pessimistic, both about the future of the Amazon and the future of our planet? Um, There are reasons to be very optimistic. I think there is a generational gap that is undeniable. You see young people really taking charge of this battle and really understanding how important this is. I think today our generation is a lot more aware than my parents' generation, for example. So that gives me optimism. I think the first thing you can do in order to solve a problem is to diagnose the problem. And I think we've gotten to this place. With that said, I think there are a lot of money hungry people, horrific politicians that are a huge threat to the Amazon and to the world. Pedro Andrade, the show is Unknown Amazon. It premieres on Vice TV on Tuesday, July the 13th at 10 p.m. A series will follow after that. Pedro is a Brazilian author, journalist, television presenter, and the host of this remarkable show. Pedro, thanks so much for joining us on the conversation. We appreciate it and good luck to you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. So what happened to Democrat Andrew Yang? It was a year ago when he fell short of the Democratic presidential nomination, losing of course to Joe Biden and falling behind Bernie Sanders. Even though Yang had this fascinating proposal for a universal basic income. And then out of the ashes of that campaign, he decided to run for New York City mayor. He was the favorite early on and then faded. I'm not even finishing in the top two. Here to talk about what happened is Varun Nikor. He is the president of the Asian American Pacific Islander Victory Fund. It is a political action committee which backed Andrew Yang's mayoral campaign. Um, Varun, what happened to Andrew Yang? 
Well, the most obvious is he didn't have enough votes. Uh, and I mean, sort of what that translates into is uh, in, in, in terms of New York City politics is he didn't have the coalitions that he needed and uh, just wasn't able to come out ahead. I, I think there's many sort of, uh, you know, uh, Layers of the onion we can peel back, but I think long. I think you know to kind of get to the heart of it. Frankly, he wasn't able to sort of have this propelling moment that really caused all corners of the city, or at least key voting blocks and coalitions to to you know support him. Were there any self-inflicted errors that maybe proved to be fatal? And I'm thinking, for example, I mean, he said that, look, I had an apartment in New York City when the pandemic hit, I got my family out of there. A lot of New Yorkers took offense at that, saying, no, he should have been tough as a New Yorker and stayed there. It seemed like that was pretty devastating to him. There were several self-inflicted wounds, certainly, and and I I think it caused concern of some, not only AAPI voters, Asian American voters, but all voters around the around the New York City area, and and of course his one sort of blunder about you know supporting the Israelis right. Uh, right before the uh, uh, conflict in in uh, Palestine, and I think that seemed like very blatant pandering to some. And so I, I think in the end there was sort of a common thread of lack of consistency, not only in terms of his core messaging and in terms of how he wanted to uh, you know portray himself, but there was these blunders that I think in the end made some folks sort of wonder whether uh, you know he was the right leader for the job at this present time. Now, never mind the, the blunders, the inability to sort of stitch together the unique coalition you need to to be successful in New York. I, there were some intriguing things about this campaign simply because he seemed to be labeled by the media to a certain extent as the foreigner in the race. What did you make of that? Yeah, it was very concerning watching this from the outside. I'm in in just outside of DC, and you know, sort of. I mean, it was really tough at this time as an Asian American candidate to run in a city where you had some of the highest acts of violence against Asian Americans, and then you had mainstream you know news articles and cartoons, frankly, that were calling him this foreigner, using tropes that have been you know used against Asian Americans. Over several decades, since the late 1800s, in fact, and I think that the sort of the insult to injury was, you know, this one cartoon showing getting out of a subway stop in Times Square when, you know, as sort of like you know a person who says when asked, "What is your?" You know, favorite spot in the city. It says Times Square, and he he chose that because he responded that Times Square was his you know favorite part of the city because that's the subway stop that he came in and out of work on a daily basis, right? So it it just showed that you know there was this subtext of of you know microaggressions slash racism against him that might not land on other candidates in the same way but you know when you use these sort of subtle tropes against Asian candidates very very concerning it makes the the job much harder to to even want to run for office did you see these tropes across the mainstream media, or were there particular publications? And I'm thinking maybe some of the, you know, the New York Post and some of the more conservative publications that were that were covering the race. 
There, there were, it was primarily that, the New York Post. And, and then I think there was towards, towards the late end of the campaign, a candidate who essentially said that he was trying to drive the people of color out of the race. And um, I, I mean, what is in fact <laughs> Andrew Yang, but a second generation Asian American. So I, I, I think that there were certain instances of this, and I think his wife had to come come out and sort of you know make a statement because he got tired of having that take him off message. So I think you know there was there was a lot of these instances that were cause of concern and and just makes the the job doubly hard as an Asian American candidate at this at this time when when nerves are very frayed across the country. Did you see some news organizations though that did perhaps a more responsible job in covering Andrew Yang and covering the campaign simply based on, again, the coalitions and the policies and not necessarily based on the ethnicity? Yeah, I think that you know overall the mainstream news outlets, I mean, it's tough, right? I mean, New York City's the, it's gotta be one of the toughest places to run for any office just because of the backbiting nature and sort of the vicious of politics that comes to it comes to the surface. But you know, for the most part, I think, yeah, they were predominantly fair. What do you see being the future for Andrew Yang? He's talked about since his loss in the New York mayoral race of wanting to contribute and serve in some capacity in New York City. What sort of role do you envision for him that would both be helpful to the city, but also to the people who supported him not only in the mayoral run, but also in his presidential campaign? I think he definitely has a future and he has a future because he has a following. and. There were a lot of supporters, donors who were captivated by his vision, frankly, for not only changing New York City, but when he was running for president, you know, how he wanted to speak to many things that a lot of candidates didn't speak to. So I think he definitely has a future and I think he's making those plans. And, you know, we look forward to hearing more and seeing more from Andrew Yang. Are you very optimistic that we'll get to a point when an Asian American presidential candidate or politician seeking the office of mayor of New York City can be defined really not by what they look like or their ethnicity or their family background, but simply more based on their policies? I, I strongly believe that we will see that day, hopefully sooner than later. We all have high hopes for Kamala Harris, and and certainly uh, there are great folks running for uh, mayor in this uh, Asian Americans who are running in the city of Boston, Michelle Wu, and in Cincinnati, Aftab Purival. So we're very excited about the future. This is the first time we believe that there are this many Asian candidates running for big, uh, you know, mayor in big towns and that could propel others to see a pathway to politics other than what might be considered typical like running for city council or state legislature or even federal office which I think you know a lot of folks gravitate to so these mayor's races in Cincinnati and Boston are something that we're keeping a very close eye on. I'll never forget when Joe Lieberman was selected by Vice President Gore in 2000 to be his running mate. There were many Jewish Americans who, while proud of Joe Lieberman and having somebody like him on the ticket, they were also nervous because they thought, oh my goodness, this might bring out more anti Semitism and maybe Joe Lieberman's life is going to be in danger and it elevates this issue. Are there some of the same anxieties in the Asian American community as political candidates with that background take on a higher prominence? 
That is always a concern, I would say, for any disadvantaged group or underrepresented group when they first you know, make this run for office. I worked on the Al Gore campaign and I was there in the office when Joe Lieberman walked by and and at the time he was a you know an inspiration to many. A lot of folks were motivated to see him run at the time. That being said, when um, you do have these uh, candidates uh, who are breaking new ground in this respect. Uh, there is that nervousness when Joe Kennedy uh, was running for office. There was this concern that, hey, this could be the first Catholic. What what would this mean in terms of, uh, you know, the viciousness of the race? And there was that concern even way back then. Do you see much um, uh, racism to this day among most mainstream voters towards Asian American candidates um, in the same way that a lot of people stay there's still you know racism and anti-Semitism to other candidates? I I think it's just situational in most respects. I'm not sure I would Paint it with a broad brush and say, you know, all candidates who run face this. I think it's it's on the margins. Yes, occasionally it happens. There's certain areas where we're keeping an eye on, you know, across the country that that are potential early warning indicators. But we, you know, overall, I think it's it's a hospitable landscape for Asian Americans to to run for office. Since Donald Trump got elected in 2016, it drove out obviously many women to run for office and a lot of people of color and specifically Asian Americans. And so I think the, the future is bright and we shouldn't let the fear of this potential, you know, these potential acts kind of keep anybody away from from serving in public public office. I agree with you. I do think there is a silver lining to the Trump era. Maybe it is that it's causing a lot of people to be more engaged in politics, more civically minded than before, because in part, so many of us are afraid of what the Donald Trump era is bringing. But in any case, Varun Nikor, he's the president of the AAPI Victory Fund. And Varun, good of you to join us today. Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure, David. Thank you. You got it. And that will do it for our show on this day. On behalf of Asher Cofield and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks and at the Conversation, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.